Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. It's one thing for a company to invest in new technology. It's another for a company to become invested in technology. In this episode, Yao Morin, CTO of JLL, explains how she isn't just adding data to the company workflow, but is instead fostering a culture of innovation and data-driven mindsets across the 240-year-old company through education and by demonstrating data's business value across departments. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Yao, welcome to the Data Chief. Hey, good morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me here. Oh, no, I'm so excited. We've we've already been having a lively discussion. I like um, our listeners to envision where you're joining us from as we travel through the world vicariously through our guests. So where are you joining us from today? I'm I'm in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco. And I don't know what you hear on the news. San Francisco is pretty safe. (laughs) And we actually got sunshine here. Oh, okay. Now, don't make me jealous. Just just because in New York, we couldn't even see the Statue of Liberty or George Washington Bridge oh, because of these fires right. this week. Um, I know you're having the be- beautiful views. Yeah. I saw some pictures um, online that is the air is very orangey. Is that real? Someone called it fake pictures. Uh, nowadays, you really can't tell oh, whether no. the pictures are real or not. <laughs> It's real. I'll send you one from my yard from yesterday. Uh, so, Yao, you have such a fascinating career in our industry, and I think it's inspirational for many. So maybe just give us the brief run through of where you started mm-hmm. and where you are now. Yeah, I started really not knowing what I wanted to do. And then I happened to stumble into the field of data. And before data science was a thing, it was kind of called operations research. And I think I'm showing my age here. I thought that it was really cool because I can use data, I can design algorithms that I can optimize different processes. Uh, I have a concentration in mobile communications and power control. And after... I graduated from my PhD. I started to work on uh, working various random jobs. Uh, my first job is actually in a law firm, advising advisors, uh, advising attorneys on patent litigation. And then I realized I actually like uh, inventing things myself than reading other people's invention. So I decided to start like working on some startups. Um, you know, mostly focusing on. Again, leveraging data on how to improve processes. And then um, I went on to work at Intuit as a data scientist. And then, and then eventually I started to manage a team. After that, working at StubHub. And then now I'm at JL, which is a commercial real estate service firm. 
Yeah. Wow. That's quite a career trajectory. So you're both a builder. Um, you have the analytical mindset and you're a strategist. That's combining a lot of skills in one. And I think one of the other things that's interesting is that you were the first chief data officer that JLL had. And within really less than a three-year time frame, you were promoted from CDO to chief technology officer, CTO. What What is the background behind that? You know, that's a... I couldn't take all the credit myself for the promotion. Uh, I think this is also, uh, you know, JL showing its commitment in technology. For those who doesn't know JLL, um, JLL is a 240-year-old company, uh, just a little bit younger than the United States. Uh, it was uh, it was a commercial real estate firm. It always needed. It's actually the second largest in in the world and Fortune two hundred companies. So as you can imagine, the scale is pretty high, and then you can't really use and manage that kind of uh, scale without any technology. So we always have technology in JLL. However, uh, about three years ago, JLL decided to really really change how uh, commercial real estate is done and it's operated by really investing in technology. So at the, when I first joined JLL, they have a very interesting data problem um, that you know commercial real estate data is very, very wide, meaning that we actually need to collect a large variety of data. And then a lot of that are unstructured. So I was really excited to join and then start solving their data problem. And then as we are solving the data problem, establish the right technology around it. And then we realize that we really need to also have a very data-driven mindset to build technology. And so that's how I transitioned to chief technology officer is to continue to drive that data-first, AI-first kind of approach in our technology building. Yeah, so that's fascinating. And I think it reflects... Well, a couple things. One, the way we say every company really wants to be more a data company in this digital economy and digital world. But I think for for some, Mm -hmm. it's just a tagline or a vision. And you are actually combining the technology and the data and the physical properties. So I think that Mm -hmm. is, is brilliant. It also has to be hard because the other thing is you went from startups, flagship brands like Intuit and StubHub to a traditional organization. And I do have to chuckle at how you compare how young America is uh, compared to JLL. Mm -hmm. I like that analogy. But a lot of other data leaders wish they would work more for the startups because they get it. They get the value of data. It's in their DNA. Mm -hmm. So how is that experience and transition coming at it from the other side been for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm very passionate about that because it was a big learning curve for me to understand the work that it takes to really educate the entire company on the importance of data and technology as well as what is the possibility. Um, To your point, Cindy, a lot of the more tech-native companies, 
most of the people in the companies just know they you don't need to tell them hey what data can do they they can come up with like 1500 uh, use cases for you uh, for you right away however in JLL why we have so many opportunities that we can use technology and data it's a journey to work with the business work with you know the the people who are in day in and they are thinking about how do we be better serving our customers and how to in you know help them to think through what we can use technology and data to solve that's a very very interesting problem and i definitely learned it you know learned it throughout my three years in jll and another interesting thing is I don't know if you guys have talked about that in your podcast before is the differences between B2B businesses as well as B2C. The data problems are completely different. So my past experience in Subhub or Intuit, the kind of data that we deal with is more consumer data and you get a large amount of them. There are a lot of insights that are very, you can drive from it. It's a lot of first party data as well. And in a B2B business, you don't actually get a large amount of data. You get a lot of, like a larger variety of data. And then um, it's a totally different challenges. So I I found it really fascinating and uh, learning that differences, understanding both sides uh, has been a real treat for me. Yeah, so you also are epitomizing one of the best characteristics I've said of high achieving CDOs, CDAOs is being a continuous learner. So it sounds like you're enjoying learning this different sector and the new types of data like leases. And I want I want to talk about some of the green properties you have on some of your buildings. But mm-hmm. for those listeners who are maybe less familiar with JLL, Maybe you also want to share, if you can, mm-hmm. um, an iconic, uh, let's say, commercial property or one of your favorite properties in the portfolio. I can't tell you what the favorite one is, but I can share one of the iconic ones. Uh, if you are in San Francisco, like I am, or you have ever visited San Francisco, I think you will remember there is a, a triangle building that looks that is really tall and looks like a pyramid. Uh, JL manages that building. And then I can always point to my friends uh, and my family and saying, hey, if you don't know what JL does, we manage that triangle building. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Okay. So you can't share favorites. It's like, I love all my children equally, right? Yeah. (laughs) You love all your properties equally. Got it. 100%. And then we try to take care of all our clients. Yeah. Okay, so the triangle building, thank you. And then JLL also publishes research that I think is interesting that shows some of our um, back to work from home, work from office, hybrid mm-hmm. hybrid work uh, styles. What data can you share that shows this moving trend? Yeah. Where do we stand now versus um, pre-pandemic maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can give you some personal data where I take public transportation every sure. day to work and then my train gets busier and busier. Now I don't even get a seat sometimes. Um, joking aside, uh, from a JL data perspective, we do help our clients to monitor a lot of the um, 
internal, you know, data that is within a building. So uh, a lot of that is not to monitor uh, our workforce. A lot of that is really for energy consumption. So we have sensors that, you know, identify whether a particular room is being used. Um, then we can start adjusting, you know, energy consumption, such as like HVAC system and lighting system. So we get a lot of usage data that way to understand where we turn to work uh, progress. We definitely see a lot more progress in terms of returning to work. I think people started to realize that working from home completely can have, um, you know, negative impact on productivity and creativity. And you know, then you started to also lose some of the culture. So we definitely see the trend of coming back to work right now. Yeah. So yeah, on the point about the energy consumption, I loved a statistic that you mentioned in an article you recently wrote on Inside Big Data mm-hmm. that in fact, nearly 40% of the world's carbon emissions comes from commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. So I think about sometimes when I go to an office and the air conditioning is just blasting Mm -hmm. and it's, it's too cold. And yet that's not one, it's not efficient. And two, it's not good for those CO2 emissions. So I love that initiative. Can you explain a little bit more about what it takes to collect that data and measure that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, when I learned about that statistics, I was shocked because you really don't think about it. A lot of time you talk about carbon emission um, from airplane travel or driving um, ice cars. Uh, however, actually, you know, the commercial real estate and residential real estate, um, they actually can, you know, the carbon emission is uh, way serious problems than, you know, way more important problems than we originally thought. So JR, we really believe that we are in the position of actually helping everyone to really uh, contribute to how do we uh, become a more sustainable world, right? There are a few things we do. The first thing is, so obviously we can, uh, we have different, uh, we collect sensor data, we have different uh, software that we use to help automatically adjust the right level of temperature as well as lighting for buildings so that we can achieve the maximum comfort for the people inside the building as well as, you know, um, energy, like reduce energy consumption. We also help companies to plan out what are the projects they can, CapEx projects they can do to actually help them to reduce carbon footprint within their building? So kind of solving the root problems. For example, like what kind of, uh, we will have algorithm to, we have data collected and algorithm to help them to understand, hey, if you replace the windows uh, in your building, how much carbon emission you, you are going to reduce by not having to heat or cool your buildings as as much. And so that's another thing that we're also doing. Um, there's a bunch of other technology and data that we're collecting and using to really help to reduce carbon footprint from a consumption perspective and also the root cause. Yeah, that's great. And as I hear you describe that, I'm picturing you bringing in all your expertise with data science, 
machine learning um, data into an industry that you're learning newly about. And I think about one leader who once said to me, our industry doesn't have a talent gap. We have an imagination gap. So I, I guess I'd like to know, do you agree with that or not? And two, I picture how have you been educating your executive team, fostering that imagination about all the things that are possible? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think to my earlier point where I think that uh, coming into JR, one of the things is to really work alongside with my colleagues and other executives to understand what data and technology can do and help them to solve real business problems. And, you know, to your quote, it's helped them to imagine what, what can be done. Uh, I think that is definitely, is I can't agree more. And I think what we, I have found really helpful to, you know, spark that imagination is to show examples of what we can do and show metrics and, you know, help them to understand the impacts of data and technology that could happen in their business. We can draw a big picture, but at the end of the day, we also should measure our impact and so that it will be more convincing and more tangible for our business partners. Yeah. So maybe can you share a new initiative where it, it was you kind of sparked the imagination, a, a new initiative, and how you're measuring those impacts? It's going back to the sustainability uh, topic, right? One of the newest innovation we had, and we're going to launch it very soon in July, is a product that we actually came out from a hackathon that we uh, started that is to get business people and technology people who don't usually work together on a daily basis, give them a week to actually come up with, you know, crazy ideas or great ideas to to solve like problems that we are, we're not solving. So this new product that we are launching that is helping our clients to understand their carbon footprint, uh, plan out their projects to reduce their carbon emission came from that. Um, and I think that that is a proud moment uh, for for innovation uh, for us. Yeah. Oh, I love that you're doing hackathons. How often do you do them? We do it once a year, and then we are come. It we are going to do our third year hackathon in October. And guess what? the The topic of this year is actually generative AI. <laughs> so we are going to have a ah, generative. Shocker. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of companies are going to have the topic of generative AI. But the other thing that I really like that you do, it's not just for the coders you have or, or for the data professionals, you have the business people partnering with them. So how does that work? Do they bring the business problem and say, have at it? Or what's yeah. the formula there? So we have um, a few different ways that we can, uh, that they can pitch ideas for for our coders. So you know we have we host pitch days for them to come. It's just like a startup style startup like pitching to invest investment banking, uh, banker style to pitch their idea, and then the developers can decide whether they want to invest their time to work on their product uh, ideas. And then we also have a evergreen um, idea channel where they can you know they can. F- 
come up with different ideas and put it in, and then we'll look at that periodically, and then also filter that to our developers. Um, sometimes through like hackathons, sometimes through like normal product development process. So we love to have our business people involved because like that's another thing I learned、um, as I you know join after I joined JLL is that you know in, on the consumer side it's pretty. Like the problems are usually pretty easy to understand because you are a consumer. I'm I'm a consumer myself. I know how you know filing taxes are for when I was in, into it. I don't need to learn that because I do that myself. I don't need to understand. I don't. I know how to how two sided marketplace work because I buy stuff on Amazon, eBay, and whatever. So you have a very intuitive understanding of the problems that you're solving. However, in In commercial real estate, I think that for the audience out there, I'm sure like you are, you know, some of us are in businesses where it's actually not that straightforward. I, you know, I we don't understand the pain point as intuitively as like the consumer product. So it's actually actually really crucial to partner with the business people on the ground that like think about those problems day in and day out. They might not have a technology background, but they surely have a lot of good idea, understand our clients very well, and so it's really really important that we put the teams together so that that's where innovation and good product can come. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight, Yao, and. I, I hadn't thought about this dynamic before that we all have empathy and understanding from the consumer side, but in B two B, the degree that a data professional understands a particular function or business domain, it might be a harder thing to overcome. And one of the things I've said in our industry, yes, business people need to be more data fluent or data literate, but. In my view, data professionals also need to be more business literate, and I wonder if it comes back to your point that that、mm-hmm. natural understanding is not there. Yeah, Cindy, you are absolutely right. You summarized really well. I think that you know it comes; it has to come both ways. Yeah, that's good because you also talk about this pitch deck. I have to come back to something in your career journey. That you also serve as an angel investor for small tech startups. I don't know if they use the abbreviation IID, Invest in Data, but tell us a little bit about、mm-hmm. that, and has that shaped the way you view these pitch days? This is a small world, so I have a few、um, friends who are also、uh, data executives. We get together. We thought that is a really good idea. I think you know investment on the side. I think the the things that most that is most exciting for me is that how we as data executives have so much experience on what kind of pain point that there are in the day to day operations of a data team,、uh, the kind of problems a data engineer has, you know, a data executive has, an analyst has, and then all that I feel like there is. There has to be a better way for us to channel all those experiences and channel all those like pain points to actually make the technology for data better. So that's where we start. That's what, kind of why we started this angel investment fund is really to help data startups 
to better understand the pain point of a data professional and data operator. And in return, we actually get better technology as a whole, like for the data community. That's how I see this investment extracurriculum things I do. And then in terms of how that impacts me in my day-to-day is one is it really helps me keep up to date on what's out there right now. What's the, what's hot, right? Second is like, um, yeah, it really helps me to understand it's just so important that we connect the pain point, connect the problems with the white people. And so that's why we have the business team and dev team come together on pitch days, how we do hackathon and, you know, also how we do product developments on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's great. So if you think about some of the pitches that you've seen from your investment side, what are maybe one or two of the trends that you're seeing that is really hot that gets you excited? Well, uh, Cindy, you, I think one of the trends you can guess <laughs> is like, okay, generative AI. Yay! Yes. <laughs> but no, beyond, okay, yeah, yeah we're, we'll talk about that. Yeah, beyond that, I think there are a lot of when software engineering become a real profession, um, there are a lot of starting to um, up tools that can help software developers uh, manage their life cycle, like their workflow, their coding life cycle. So a lot of SDLC kind of tools starting to pop up, right? Such as Jira, such as Confluence, all those things. I see yeah. that a trend is like there are a lot of kind of SDLC style of like tools that's helping data professionals to be better manage their workflow, that better manage their code, and then starting to have that rigor and process for uh, data scientists, for machine learning engineering, uh, for data engineering. Because like, it, it cannot be just, it needs to have that kind of rigor and a kind of process to ensure the yeah. quality of the code, quality of the, the product as well. So I see a lot of like that, you know, SDLC style tools and startups that are popping up lately. Another trend I see, well, it has been a trend for a very long time, is continue to, um, that's probably more in your realm, uh, Cindy, is how do we get to insights faster? It's so difficult to go from raw data to actual insights people can leverage. So there are a lot of companies trying to solve, like shorten that life cycle, uh, shorten that time from data, raw data to insight and come up with different ways to do that. So those are the two trends, uh, I think, as outside of gen AI that I see a lot. Well, and I see generative AI and, and yes, that is a, that's been my life's work. Let's say (laughs) decrease the distance to the decision maker, the decision maker to the data really who who needs Mm -hmm. that insight. Mm -hmm. And, and as you're now CTO, that's, that's your (laughs) time too. And a lot has to happen. And I do see generative AI having a role here. Um, If you think about the way generative AI can transform the entire data and analytics workflow. So it's not Mm -hmm. just on the insights. Is there one piece of that workflow that you were most excited about? Yes. Specifically, I think it's not so much about the workflow, it's about the type of data that we can effectively dealing with. So as a data professional, Mm -hmm. we all know unstructured data is just 
you know, has always been very, very challenging to leverage at scale. Yes. Also, you know, add to that dimension is uh, multi-language uh, unstructured data. So data coming in Chinese, in Hebrew, in English, in French, right? Uh, is there's always a very huge barrier in leverage those data and generate insight at scale. I, I see that uh, generative AI is going to really break down that barrier of leveraging unstructured data in multiple languages. I'm very, very excited to see um, what kind of breakthrough we can we can do with the with generative AI in this area. Yeah, I think that's a great use case. And I know, I just think companies that have tried to do this earlier, the technology wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And I think the technology is ready now. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it is indeed exciting. I also want to come back to something that you said at the very beginning, where you credited your team for your rise to this role. And I think about where you were 10 years ago versus where you are now, 10 years ago, managing a team of three data scientists and now leading a team of, I think, 700, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. That's quite a change. Yeah. um, So right now it's a thousand now. So three to a thousand, it, it definitely is a change. Yeah, so so it has been a journey, and I have learned so much. I definitely, I think that I have I I got very lucky to have a lot of mentors and a lot of sponsors to help me to get here. Also, I got really really lucky with um, the teams that I have. My team members really supported me throughout the journey. I you know I wouldn't be here if without them, their help. Yeah, is there? Can you share maybe? specific advice that has served you the most well in leading large teams? Okay, leading large teams. The number one thing is to remember how to to find ways to scale yourself, to, to have the right delegate. I think sometimes going from an individual contributor to a, a manager of a small team or from a manager of small team to a manager of managers and then large organization, it's very easy to just keep doing what you did before because you were successful before. So one is big changes, uh, you know, relies on how you readjust your management style, especially as you go to manager of man- a manager of managers or like leading large organization, having those delegate who can really help you to manage an area uh, will be really key to your success because there are always more um, things and more people want your time than you have time for. And scale how to scale yourself, how do you delegate um, is the key. That's great advice. The other thing um, I'd be curious how you think of this is the shift in mindset from being a manager to being more of a coach. Oh, absolutely true, Cindy. It's actually really tough to be a coach. Uh, I actually had recently read a book about how to be a better coach uh, because being a technologist, uh, your natural tendency is jump to solutioning, right? So when whenever you're um, yeah. 
whenever your um, you know team came uh, comes with a problem or a question, then you immediately jump to how do we solve that, right? And I yes. think that's like a manager, not a coach, right? A coach is really start helping them to understand the problem themselves, helping leading them to like a solution they can own themselves. Asking one one thing that I took away from that book is. Uh, you need to ask more questions and less solutioning. That's a difficult transition. It's it's hard for me to not yeah. just like, let me tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And I think it's also that shift from look at all that I accomplished rather than, no, it's, it's what has my team done because I just guided them and coached them. Do you remember the name of the book? Oh, oh uh, can you share I, it? Yeah, I can definitely share it. Let me let me look it up as we are talking. <laughs> oh, d- oh, don't worry. No, okay. well, no, no, no. Don't multitask. We're, but we'll add it to the show notes. Um, okay, that's fine. Okay, for, for okay, people, for people to check out. Yeah, uh, it's a really good book. So yeah, the other thing I would be remiss if I did not ask you about being a woman in tech and a woman in data, mm-hmm. and to share just a, a couple points. Even if I look at as CDOs, CDAOs, there was a survey by Tom Davenport. I think it's roughly a quarter of mm-hmm. um, CDOs are women. If we look at the percentage of tech leaders who are women, it was a high of 33% a few years ago, and it, it's fallen. And actually, if I go back even further, when mm-hmm. I was in college in the 80s, we had more people pursuing tech degrees then. So 33% to 28% now, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the underlying factors that contribute to this underrepresentation of women in tech and leadership roles? That's a, definitely a very complex kind of question. I think key contributors, I think it's it's a leadership style differences between how women usually show leadership and how it's expected from them. That's one of the main blockers I see a lot of women uh, not being able to get to the top. Can I pause you there? Because yeah. do you mean that we're being judged with different sets of criteria or do we actually need to adapt our leadership mm-hmm. styles? If I'm being specific, I think we're being judged by a certain criteria that do not really fit naturally on how women lead. Okay, so maybe this is a little bit rambling, but I was reading the book um, called The Invisible Women. So it talks about how... Oh, you have read that, Cindy. So it was very eye-opening on what it (laughs) mentioned is that even for medical, um, you know, medical research, women doesn't get represented uh, in medical trial. So it results in some of the medication and test standards are not really based on women's natural physics or how um, a disease may um, show up uh, in a woman's body. So I think I translate that to Right now, a lot of leadership guideline and what is considered to be good leadership is based on how men lead, right? Obviously, some of them are very good. Like, it's more tailored towards 
how man leads because historically that's where we learn good leadership style is from man in leadership positions. However, I think we need to start form, forming a different way of seeing leadership. And then that needs to have more women data points in it so that we can really have, you know, a different kind of expectation on what kind of, what is a good leader. It can come from, it can be a man or a woman, and it doesn't have to be one style. I think that's specifically what I mean. And right now, you, I feel like sometimes we are making, you know, trying to fit a, a circle in a square peg uh, kind of uh, situation. My second point, women still take on more uh, household responsibility, regardless of what we want to believe, right? And I think we need a different kind of flexibility for women so that it also fits more of their uh, lifestyle as well. So I think that the current, some of the current, uh, you know, schedule and the way that it demands um, time at work could be hard for women who have different choices uh, in their lifestyle. So I think those two uh, at a high level, I think are holding women back. Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> that's that's a loaded one. Yeah, that is like a societal issue um, of it's, it's so many women do double duty. And a lot yes. of this is different culturally too, mm-hmm. whether it's Latin American cultures, yeah. Indian cultures, yeah. um, where the expectations are different. And, and I'll share a funny story. I really hope my neighbor doesn't listen to this podcast. I don't think she would, (laughs) but my, um, (laughs) we'll we'll find out. I, I don't know. She might unfriend me, but, but, um, when my kids were little 20 years ago, the, the five-year-old from next door comes in and, and my husband and I have a reasonable division of labor in the house because we were both working, um, when our kids were young. And my husband was folding the laundry. Yeah. And the little girl from next door says, Mr. Housen, why are you doing the laundry? And I just had to laugh. And it was oh my gosh. her father do the laundry. <laughs> yeah. Now, her, now, to be fair, her father will make the lunch and all that, but he's just yeah. not a laundry kind of guy. Got but it. I just thought it was funny um, that these, these divisions of labor mm-hmm. are learned so early. Yes. A hundred percent. And I feel like, you know, changing the culture, changing the expectation from a societal like expectation and tradition pers- perspective will be, will take a longer time frame. However, I think uh, companies can actually adapt a little bit faster in terms of, you know, given that kind of expectation, given that, yes, we're changing, but it still is the reality. How do we provide um, a more flexible, more, um, you know, a suitable environment for women to grow and, you know, you know, to, to grow and develop? I think that's where, I, where we should um, continue to think about and create that uh, change. Yeah. So some specific and actionable advice there from different fronts. Thank you, Yao. Let's switch to Mm -hmm. a lightning round now. 
Um, So short answers, quick questions. Are you ready? Yes. Favorite activity when you're not working with data and tech? Watching my husband play video games. Oh, what's what's his favorite video game? Right now, we are playing Diablo 4. Okay. If you were CEO for a day, what would you tell the data team? I know your job is pretty difficult, but you are making an impact. I think that would mean a lot to the data team. Yeah, I like that. One word to describe ChatGPT. Revolutionary. I agree. Fill in the blank. Data is? Asset. What is a song that pumps you up after a hard day? Bohemian Rhapsody. Great. Love it. Yep. I love that one. Um, (laughs) Is there a data leader you would most like to hear from on the Data Chief podcast? I would like to hear from Andrew Ann. Yes. I would like to hear from him too. Thanks for that suggestion. And then I'll let you choose the, the last question, depending on your mood in the moment. Okay. Either something of late that has just made you laugh out loud, or what are you most grateful for? Of course, beyond the the obvious health, family, a job. Oh, I have been obsessed with watching panda videos online. And then, you know, pen, you know this, this video about like panda trying to escape from the zoo was like super funny. So I did laugh out loud on that video. Okay. We're going to have to link to that. I have not engaged in that. I tend to watch the cats. Oh, I (laughs) love cats too. uh, Cat videos. Yeah, the cats are awesome. I love pandas now. Yeah, that's great. Yao, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.